This podcast is brought to you by Premiere, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at premierchristianradio.plus. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. It's Premier Christianity Magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type your details in and we'd be delighted to send you a free copy of the UK's leading Christian magazine. But today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Pastor Tim Chaddick. Tim was born and raised in California, where he planted Reality Church in Los Angeles. In 2015, Tim moved to the UK to lead Reality Church London, a community following Jesus and seeking the renewal of London. He's the author of two books, The Truth About Lies and Better, How Jesus Satisfies the Search for Meaning. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be with you. I'd love to hear more about growing up in sunny California, which I have been to and is incredibly sunny and beautiful. Um, We'll get on to why on earth you would move to rainy London in a moment. (laughs) Um, But tell me more about um, growing up in in California. Did you grow up in a a Christian family? Yeah, well, you're right, Sam. It is very sunny. Um, And sometimes when I'm... uh on Instagram, we see some old friends and photos of the sun. And my wife and I think, what's that yellow orb in the sky? We haven't <laughs> seen it so long. Um, yeah, so born and raised specifically in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. My parents uh, were Christians. And um, my dad was actually a pastor, um, part of the Calvary Chapel movement. Um, from my earliest uh, years, though, my dad uh, became very, very unwell of illnesses of which would later lead to his death. And in that particular area, what's interesting is regardless of the stereotypes of churches in America, where there's huge churches on every street corner, that was definitely not my experience, especially not in uh, Northern California. I don't think I ever really met anyone I went to school with who was a Christian, uh, even in name, you wouldn't even meet like a nominal kind of Christian. Um, as, as I like to say, it's all science and crystals okay. in the Bay Area. So yeah. on the one hand, deeply logical. On the other hand, you know, crystals and granola and kale. And uh, that would be Northern California, basically. So I, um, I respected my parents. But as my dad was very unwell, uh, the way I coped with it, my brother and I coped with it, is we just did whatever we wanted mm-hmm. to do. And uh, I just kind of rejected Christianity right. and yeah. everyone I knew did as well. Yeah. So that that was kind of my my younger years. Yeah, I guess when a lot of particular um, Brits think about America, a lot of Christians will just immediately think of kind of Bible Belt territory and think there's a mega church on every street corner. Yeah. But I've been to California as well, and that's not really quite the vibe there even now, is it? It's Definitely it's not. Uh, it's much more secular. Perhaps has more in common than Europe than other parts of America. I think so. Uh, there would be. a pockets that would be kind of an exception, you know, parts of Southern California, definitely. In fact, my wife is from Southern California, and I remember first moving down there, and I saw Christian bumper stickers on cars, and I thought, what is this? There's like Jesus fish, and I just didn't know anything about it. Yeah, you, yeah. you don't really get the the Christian culture, yeah. and politically, it's incredibly um, 
I mean, it's San Francisco and Berkeley, so just the whole history there. It's one of the most, you know, in that sense, progressive parts of yeah. the state. So, yeah, I, I'd never, the first time I stepped foot in a mega church, I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> my idea of church was like, you know, 20 people gathered in a room, light a candle, and wait on God and yeah. open the Bible. Yeah. You know? So, tell me more about your kind of teenage years. Um, you weren't really kind of um, following Christianity at that point? Yeah, that would probably be a, an understatement. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I was I was definitely very bad, but I don't think I was necessarily bad in relation to everyone else I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's really interesting, my wife and I chat about this a lot, is a lot of my friends, you know, we did all the typical, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll kind of thing. But what's interesting is my friends' parents were doing the same things. Um, they were using drugs. In fact, I remember when I was, I think I was 14 or 15, and I went to buy drugs from a friend's house, and the door opens, and it was one of my teachers selling it. <laughs> I thought, uh, what do I do? Wow. Is this like a don't yeah. ask, don't tell you know, situation? So it was just very, very normal. Um, so early on, the way that I think I just coped in life and my dad's suffering and my own kind of you know brokenness uh, – yeah, from a very early age, became very sexually promiscuous, um, started using a lot of substances. And that all kind of came to a head around the time when I was about 17. I think all of that really caught up to me in a point that was um, was really heavy for me. And I, I did what a lot of people do, and I tried to clean myself up. And over the next two years, basically, it was I was my own. I wouldn't have used this language, but I was my own self-salvation project. And I thought, I can do this, you know, I'm going to have a great career and I'm going to stop, you know, doing all these terrible things. And, you know, I didn't need God. Mm-hmm. So I, I was essentially just a self-sufficient person. So I was I was lost one way and then I realized, oh, there's more than one way to be lost and try to save yourself. Um, so that pretty much summarizes my uh, my <laughs> teenage years. <laughs> sure. And presumably things at home must have been really hard. And, and did this kind of account for some of the behavior of your dad being so ill? Yeah, I think my, uh, so I just grew up with a brother and the way that my brother and I dealt with it was very different. Uh, my brother tended to be a little more uh, angry and depressed. Um, I was more of an escapist. Um, so, I mean, my dad was just bedridden. It was just terrible. He just uh, went through so much pain, so much suffering. My mom worked uh, as a school teacher. Um, and so I think I was a little bit off the radar so I could kind of, you know, do my own thing as Californians do. And, um, yeah, so the way that we dealt with it was very much that. For me, it was probably a way of just burying everything, not wanting to to deal with the hospital visits and things like that with my dad. Just kind of, you know what, I'm just going to go into my own world of escapism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's really all it was yeah. uh, when I look back. So what changed? There was this I, – I ran into this um, this really <laughs> – this really annoying Christian girl um, at this event. I was probably about 19. Um I was in this long relationship with a girl that had just completely fallen apart. She was in San Francisco, and um, it's just a, a kind of a terrible situation. So I meet this this annoying Christian girl bothering me about going to this Christian event in the city of San Jose, which if you're where uh, I'm from, you don't go there. Like, you don't go to San Jose. Like, I hate San Jose um, by, you know, on principle. And so that was in the back of my mind, and she would, she would keep reminding me of this event. And one morning after a really rough night of just drinking and partying with a lot of my my friends, I on three hours of sleep, I woke up the next morning, and I got a phone call from this girl. She said, the event's today. You need to come. And at the time, I, I did not know what was happening, but I had to go. It's like I've had no sleep. Surprisingly, I was sober, and I said, I have to go to this. And I got in my car, and I drove two hours to that 
what I thought was a godforsaken place. <laughs> and I went to this event and it was a little bit more of what you might expect with a typical, you know, kind of a Christian culture church uh, in San Jose. They have some bigger churches there. And there was this band called Switchfoot, which I hated. I didn't know that they were kind of the holy grail of, you know, Christian music at the time. But, and this guy just came out on the stage and he just preached, you know, just the pure and simple gospel. And I was absolutely undone. I was just weeping. Um, all of my, all of my sins it was like, I knew in that moment that Christ had paid for all of my sins. And, you know, there's a lot of very dark stuff that I had done and been involved with. I consented to abortions. I mean, just all this thing, all these things were just had weighed on me for years. And just to know in a moment that I was forgiven, uh, I was just, I lost it, um, emotionally. And, I remember all the other young people around me were looking over at me. I think it was, it was an altar call, you know, where they kind of bring people to the front. And I was at the front, and the other people at the front were like, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I've just been forgiven. And they took me in a back room, and this young kid tried to tell me the four steps you need to take. You know, you need to read your Bible. And I was just, I can't believe I'm forgiven. The poor kid didn't know what to, to do yeah. with me. Um, I was so excited that night that I actually slept in the gymnasium that the church owned because I didn't want to leave that place. And on my way home to the North Bay area, I stopped by a payphone. Uh, Remember those? I do. Before the days of mobiles. Before the days. The dark Um, days. (laughs) Yes. What what are we talking here? 80s? Yeah. It was, it was the late nineties, you know, but um, yeah, they were, they were definitely dark technological (laughs) days. So I, I phoned up all my friends and most of them were, you know, atheists or, you know, similar. And they thought you are crazy. I said, I've just become a Christian. And like, you're insane. And basically for the first year of my Christian faith, every single friend I knew thought I was crazy. And I had to defend myself. I started reading C.S. Lewis. I'm like, I love this guy. And you know, all the classic apologetics book, Josh McDowell, things like that. And, uh, so that was kind of my first year of this is what it's like to follow Jesus. Nobody else that, you know, it's going mm-hmm. to follow Jesus. Yeah. You've got to be ready to give an answer for why you believe what you believe. I took nothing for granted. Um, and in many ways, though, it was really difficult. I am so thankful for that. Yeah. I was invited to a small group at a church, and I didn't care who was in that room. It was all these people that were older than me. We didn't have anything in common. But I was so grateful just to know another Christian. And I will never forget that, especially when you minister to people who— uh, you know, take those things for granted. And they say, well, I want more people that are, you know, maybe this age or that age, or I want them to be brunette and have, you know, blue <laughs> eyes, you know, it's like running e-harmony for the church or something. But man, I think Diedrich Bonhoeffer actually said, you know, if, even if you know another Christian, you should get down on your knees and thank God from the bottom of your heart and yeah. say, by grace alone, I know another Christian. And so I'm really thankful for those, uh, that formative year. Sure. So I guess your uh, your friends probably had very mixed uh, reactions. What what was the family reaction to you having this very uh, dramatic moment? <laughs> Absolutely incredible. In fact, I don't know if my mom actually believed it. <laughs> I think I um, my mom been praying for years. <laughs> oh yeah, she was. You know, just a she still is. My my mother's uh, just about seventy five now, and to this day, she cannot believe that. You know. Not only did I get saved, but I'm a minister, and, you know. Uh, but I think I remember this look of—I think she was ironing something, and I told her, "It's like I gave my life to Jesus." And I remember her just looking at me like, oh, "Like, do I believe this? This is too good to be true. Like, what's happening?" And um, yeah, it was just amazing. My dad—that was uh, right before um, he ended up passing away, not too long after that. But it was just amazing. And a little bit later, my brother actually came to Christ as well. So right before my dad died, both 
my brother and I came to Christ and it was just an incredible redemptive story. Well, that was a very special moment. Oh, it was very, very, um, it was very powerful. So um, at what point in your story did you feel like you were being called to be a pastor? It was when I, um, I started attending a Bible college in Southern California in part because uh, it was really affordable and I wasn't quite sure what to do with my life. You know, it was after okay. about a year and a half of, okay, I'm a Christian and I could pursue music, but I've still got time to do that. So I dropped my courses at the time and I thought, you know what? I need to study the Bible. I need to just get my head around this and have a really solid foundation. I got accepted shockingly to this Bible college and uh, went to Southern California. I think within my first week or two, I met the girl who would eventually become my wife. So I'm sure... People have heard that story many times before. Absolutely. Uh, That's, yeah. It's become some, something of a kind of classic story, isn't it, of meeting your other half at Bible college? In fact, dare I yeah. say it, that's where my parents met. So oh. I'm very familiar with that story. Well, I'm a statistic. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy about that. And I remember having a conversation with her about ministry. And I told her I never want to be a pastor. I, I just don't want to do it. I, I had a glimpse as to what, mm -hmm. um, you know, what went on with that. And, uh, I just didn't, you know, I was happy to serve in church, but I definitely didn't have any kind of, uh, ambition or desire to be a part of that. And it was actually when, um, there was a few influential teachers and pastors during that time, but one of them in particular, uh, started having me read, uh, Martin Lloyd Jones books in my studies. And one day in the bookshop, I saw preaching and preachers, his famous book on obviously preaching. <laughs> Great title. Um, I bought it, started reading it, and I got to the chapter where he preaches on, uh, or teaches rather, on uh, Romans 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? And I remember vividly reading that text, Romans 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? And it was like the Spirit of God was just calling, this is what you're going to do. I just felt compelled. From that point on, I thought, okay, something's happening. Yeah. But what does that mean? What does right. that look like? Yeah. So I started, you know, I signed up for these like homiletics courses, preaching courses, um, little opportunities would arise here and there, um, you know, to teach or preach and people would kind of identify that gift. Oh, you, you can <laughs> communicate when you're not being totally ADD, you know, oh, that's, that's good. Um, you know, just little things like that. And then by yeah. the end of my uh, time at Bible college, it became clear that I think I need to, to pursue this. How quickly after Bible college did Reality Church LA come about? So I finished in 2001, and uh, we didn't start uh, the planting in L.A. until 2005. So in between that time, I uh, worked at a church for four years. That's where I got my ordination, got a lot of training, you know, funerals, weddings, you know, teaching, all of that, which was uh, an incredible experience. But during those years, I met a guy named Britt Merrick, who, had, uh, who was essentially the founder of what is now called the Reality Family of Churches, which is not huge. It's just a small movement, um, but very thankful for it. He started it. And I think what I loved about what they were doing in California at the time was a strong emphasis on good theology, faithful Bible preaching, openness to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a very healthy way. We became great friends. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, my, my wife and I have been praying about um, church planning. I love urban areas. Um, San Francisco was always on my mind. So we were praying, and he said, well, where do you want to plant a church if you were to plant a church? And I said San Francisco. 
And he looked back at me and he said, what about Los Angeles? And I said, I hate LA. <laughs> like LA is terrible because if you're from San Francisco, you, you just you have, have the rivalry and you have to, yeah. you have to look down. I'm sure on it works both ways as well. Oh yeah. SF's like, we created Twitter, but we don't use it. You can use it LA. <laughs> it's like the annoying little brother that wants to hang out, you know, and you're like, go away. Um, so that's very much the relationship. But he, uh, my friend Britt said, well, why don't you just pray about it? Because where we want to plant is in Hollywood in particular. So mm-hmm. just pray about it. So my wife and I spent eight months and there was no kind of one moment where the spirit of God broke in and mm. said, you must plant, you know, we saw the Hollywood sign in the sky <laughs> or anything like that. Um, but over the course of those eight months, we felt a settled conviction that we have to do this. We're called to it. So my wife and I would travel up to LA and just spend time there mm. and kind of walk the streets, pray. And so at the end of 2005, we got everything ready and planted. We only had a um, a team of like two people people there there's a handful of people that we had met yeah. sadly all the great church planning books that are now available in mass um they just i don't just i don't remember exist. seeing any of them right somebody yeah. handed me a, a tim keller sermon on a cd like an mp3 <laughs> cd in 2005 and they're like listen to this and i was like who is this presbyterian guy and, you know little did i know he'd grow on and write like the manuals on church yes. planning but yeah all that stuff was very influential. And uh, sure. so, yeah, we started with a handful of people in a living room and uh, had our first service um, yeah. at the beginning in 2005. Of the year. Yeah. So there you go. And from 2005, 2015, you were heading up that church, yeah. Reality Church LA. And then, of course, after that, which we'll get to, you, you moved here to London, which where you're now based. But let's let's hear a bit more about um, about this church. I mean, first of all, Reality Church. Where does that name come from? What does Reality <laughs> Church mean? Yeah, it is a funny name. I get asked about it all the time. Um, I suppose it essentially means two things. Uh, one, there's kind of a, a biblical idea uh, primarily focused on Paul's word in his letter to the church, uh, Colossian church where he says um, um, Jesus is reality. He's saying, you know, when the, when the Bible's talking about like what is most important, God is the reality. When he pulls back the curtain on everything, it's a person. And so um, that it, it's a real, we're saying that ultimate reality is the God of the Bible and we want everyone to meet mm-hmm. um, with him. So plain and simple, that's kind of the yeah. idea behind it. There's also a more practical, philosophical way in which that, uh, which the name functions for mm-hmm. us, and that's just how we want to operate. We want to be authentic. We want to not wear the mask. We don't want to play church games. Um, if we've got issues, difficulties, let's deal with it. When it comes to difficult passages in the Bible, let's mm-hmm. not shy away from it. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. Um, so it yeah. kind of really shapes the philosophy of our church. Hollywood is such a fascinating place to plant a church. <laughs> in many ways. And um, and L.A. as well. I mean, L.A. Is, is like the entertainment capital, certainly of the West, arguably of, of the world. You have a very certain kind of person who would work or live um, or visit somewhere like LA. There's a lot of kind of cool, hip churches. You've got the kind of hill songs. You've got Mosaic. Do these sort of things sum up the approach to something like Reality Church LA as well? In some ways, I think it's a little bit different. And I'm definitely a huge advocate and fan of a variety of church expressions, um, you know, kind of high church, low church, fog machines, lasers, or not, wooden pulpits, like I don't, you know, um, whatever kind of suits you. That's great. I think for us, it was actually more a simple approach. So uh, with the exception of Mosaic, a lot of the churches that are now known um, for being in Hollywood, they didn't start until the last five or six years. So when we moved in, we'd heard of Mosaic, but a lot of central Hollywood were dying mainline denominations in the States. 
and the churches that tended to be strong were uh, very focused on a particular background. You'd had Korean American churches, um, Spanish speaking churches and whatnot. Um, and so in the midst of that, I think what our philosophy was, was let's actually keep it really simple. And one reason I was actually intimidated or maybe just not really interested in trying to have a huge production value is because everyone we were ministering to did that as a profession. Right. And it almost seemed like a joke to me, to it, it, at least if this were our approach to say, hey, we can, like, do, this. We yeah. can do this. Then everyone, in fact, one of our one of our um, one of the guys on our lead uh, team in the early years, he's one of the greatest set designers in Hollywood. And he loved the simple approach. Just right, yeah. We hardly, we just kind of dimmed the lights and, you know, I preached for like an hour, you know, stuff, all the stuff you're not supposed to do. Yeah. The music wasn't that impressive, you know, and we just didn't really put a lot into it. And for some reason that just worked really well yeah. for us. We just kind of kept it simple. So, so tell me about how it worked because um, you started with how many people? It was probably about, you know, 15 okay. people or so. And then you fast forward 10 years later to when you leave and how many people were going? It's about 2,500 to 3,000. It's a it huge inc- growth. Yeah, it was crazy. And, and it was not typical. <laughs> yeah, and not what people expect because, again, you know, maybe this is a bit of a cynical view, but there are those who would say, well, what happens is you have a church turn up and they do the production stuff properly and they have the light show and the guitars and everything else, and that does help attract people. I mean, right. it just does, right? Especially younger people um, in a city like LA. You're saying that, that that wasn't the approach. So so how do you explain the growth? Yeah, there was, there's one story in particular that, that stands out. There, there was some a little bit of slow growth. I think the first year or two, you know, we went from like 30 to 50 to 75. And most of it was relational. Friends would invite friends. Um, but one thing that happened in particular that was an incredible story is a, a young student who had uh, graduated or he was near graduating um, one of the well-known universities there, USC. And he was one of those guys who loved Jesus. He had a great reputation amongst all his Christian friends and his friends who were not Christians. And he got in this terrible accident. He went into a coma for months and he eventually died. But during that time of his coma, I remember, you know, visiting family in the hospital and, you know, people praying for him. But all of his friends who weren't Christians or Christians who had kind of fallen away, it was as if all of a sudden they started becoming concerned about their own souls. They were concerned about their friend. And they said, well, what church does he go to? And they just started showing up. They started coming to church. I would preach these terrible or at best mediocre sermons. (laughs) And and I'm, that's not a false humility. Like my father-in-law attended our church. He's like, yeah, your sermons were pretty bad. And yet, you know, yeah, it was great, you know, um, great wisdom. And, uh, and yet people would just respond. There'd be these, you know, tears and people would be giving their life to Christ. And I remember honestly thinking this is, God is doing yeah. something. Yeah. And it just grew like 150, 200 people, 300 people. It was just this thing that happened. And yeah. it was, uh, it was definitely not manufactured and it was, uh, it yeah. was incredible and it just didn't, it didn't stop. But I think yeah. most of the growth was really through a relational, you know, someone would just really just catch on fire for Christ and they would just invite their mm. friends, family members, LA. One advantage is LA is a very social place. So if, you're an individual that gets excited about something, you, you know, tell people, you tell people, <laughs> I guess that's the way it should work. And the way it's worked since the beginning, arguably yeah. with Christianity, it's simply, I think so. simply us sharing with those around us. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's no more complicated than that, arguably, is it? Yes, I, I would agree. 
when it did start to really take off, though, I'm sure there must have been a lot of logistical challenges oh. suddenly going from a handful of people to hundreds and you've got to manage things like buildings and where do we meet and do we need to put structure around this? And presumably all that was completely new for you, you know, yes. still fairly fresh out of Bible college. So how did you manage that? Was this a case of putting good people around you who could advise or figuring it out for yourself? How did it work? Yeah, that's a. I think it really at any size, um, I think you, you always have to deal with those complexities and I, as you say, I think the the most strategic thing for me is it's almost like using the example in Acts chapter six. You know, Peter preaches this amazing sermon, and thousands get saved, and then all of a sudden there's drama and difficulty, and you've got to appoint spirit filled people to do the work. Uh, it very much was that mm-hmm. um, part of the freedom that I had just as a leader is knowing that um, I don't have all the answers, mm-hmm. and I'm totally fine with that. And I'm really happy to help and empower people and make sure that they have the support and encouragement um, that they need. So in some ways, we were kind of groping in the dark, as mm, it were, yeah. trying to learn from what other people had done. But it really boils down with it to a few key people who were really gifted in that way and would see the kind of pain points. I think my what I saw was my responsibility was to make sure, and this is something I'm very passionate about, is make sure that structures serve relationships, not the other way around. It's very easy to become corporate and, um, you know, we need some kind of structure. So I'm not denying that. I think it's really hard to manage, though. I mean, a lot of people go through this where, like you say, when things get bigger, it necessitates some sort of structure around it. But if you're not careful before you know it, you've got this really kind of authentic thing that's just happening by itself and you put too much structure around it. And suddenly it becomes incredibly controlled. Like how yeah. how do you build structure in a way that still enables people to follow the spirit and go where they yeah. need to go? I think one principle that we definitely learned is always be flexible. I think when somebody has a great idea for structures, this is how we're going to do our small groups. This is how we're going to do our volunteer rota on a Sunday or whatever it might be. Um, once the plan is implemented, people tend to want it to be concrete and then they don't adapt uh, you know, to yeah. the needs of the people. It becomes a kind of rule that you can't break. Exactly. One really helpful thing in that, and this is where I do think that making sure the values are implemented into every part of the ministry is sometimes with logistical, you know, kind of structure things. You just give it to the structure people and they run with it. But I want to make sure that those people know that it's all about loving and serving, you know, turning over the spreadsheet, putting a face on it and remembering that, you know, it's great that we've got this spreadsheet or we're using this app or that app, but show up and get people to pray together, ask them how their day is going, like, you know, implement those things into the, into your strategy, you know, take time to pray. Uh, Don't just assume they're not going to pray before you set everything up at church. Stop. Let's take 10 minutes. Let's pray together. And then let's go serve. Those things just make all the difference. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. It's The Profile, and I'm sitting down with Tim Chaddock, the lead pastor of Reality Church London, to find out more about his life and testimony. We'll be right back with the second part of today's show after this. Billy Graham was the man who preached to millions. Don't miss this month's Premier Christianity tribute magazine to our generation's greatest evangelist with photos, interviews and features on his life and legacy. Plus our exclusive interview with Franklin Graham, son of Billy. Chris Kandaya reveals why the cross is bigger than you think and we investigate the Easter miracle of holy fire in Jerusalem. All that plus much more. Ask for your free copy of our Billy Graham tribute magazine at Premier Christianity. 
com slash free sample. The profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, a very good afternoon to you and welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. Today I'm speaking to the pastor of Reality Church London, Tim Chaddock. Let's listen in to the second half of my interview. If we've been conducting this interview, say year three or year four of you starting Reality Church LA and I asked you, how long are you in LA for? What would you have said? Oh, dear. Um, what did I say? <laughs> I can't even remember. It was all a blur. Um, I think... We knew that we wouldn't be there forever, but we definitely didn't have a, a timeline on it. Um, everything was kind of happening. And so there were never days where I'm thinking, oh, what's next? Or yeah. where am I going to move? Like we That definitely wasn't on our radar. So when did London come up? London has been um, definitely a part of our story for a long time. In fact, when I first went into um, ministry years and years ago, um, a guy named Brian Broderson, who was a pastor um, from the States, actually lived in London for several years in the 1990s, started Calvary Chapel, Westminster. Um, I met him through Bible college, and he took me on a trip to London in the year 2000. It was January 1st, the year 2000. Oh, wow. So big day. Um, How did you celebrate the millennium? Were you on a plane at the time? We were on a plane, oh, yeah. wow. What was that uh, like? Did the whole plane sort of cheer, and, or was it all just everyone sleeping? You know, I think everyone was sleeping. Oh, I think it was disappointing. I mean, yeah. I remember the turn of millennium. That was huge. That yeah. was, everyone was fear. Weren't people fearing that planes were going to drop out of the sky, actually? Yeah, Y2K. bug and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's been so long since I've even thought about so it. So you dared to get on a plane. We dared to do the impossible. <laughs> Um, and we ended up staying at a bed and breakfast in Twickenham, you know, to celebrate. Living the high life. <laughs> uh, yeah, the wilds of Twickenham. Um, so, yeah, that was my first trip. And we traveled um, to different parts of the UK, visiting churches. And we got involved in uh, Creation Fest, which is a Christian music festival down in Cornwall that um, is still very... Still going strong. Still going strong to this day. So we were involved in it in the early days. And at that time, uh, I was playing in uh, some some Christian bands. Oh, and, go on. Which one? Yeah, do well, tell. Do no, tell. No, nobody really knows. Oh, go uh, on. It was a band called Smithfield. Um, right. We were basically the filler band, uh, you know, for, uh, I can't remember who, who Delirious playing? played, but Delirious. whoever it was, you know, we, we were like the, you know, hey, do we, do we have a slot, you know, in the 3 p.m., you know, slot? Let's, let's put them in there. Uh, but it was great fun, and we would go out and do, um, we'd play in schools, which was great. The the fact that you could go into to schools, and they would, they would let us, you know, share our testimonies and stuff was amazing. And I know there are some people that still do that strong. So anyway, you know, we were involved in that and we had a, there's a great couple that we sent out around the time that we started Reality LA. They're from LA um, to come here as ministers to try to plant a church. They were here for five years. Um, so we had relationship with them. I would come back to visit them as well as get involved with different wider networks. And so long story short, all of that was just on our radar yeah. and we thought one day we may end up in the UK, but it wasn't until the last probably two years that I was at um, Reality LA that everything was going well, but just in our heart, there was a sense that our, our time is coming to an end. And it was the strangest feeling because it wasn't like the ship was sinking. <laughs> we thought, oh, this is a good time to ask God for what the next step is. Yeah. Uh, everything was, you know, seemed healthy and um, it, was, it was great, but we couldn't shake that sense that our time sure. was coming to an end. And was there an obvious kind of transition plan, obvious personal people to hand over to? There were definitely um, 
options, in-house options, which was great. One person in particular who was a guy that we had hired uh, several years um, prior to this moment we made our decision, just a real faithful man, incredible teacher. Um, we just got on so well. And so as I, as my wife and I were really praying through, are we actually going to leave? And are we going to move to London? This is crazy. But in the back of my mind, this particular person was definitely my, my first choice. Mm-hmm. So as we were praying, we knew there would come a time where we would have to tell them, uh, shocking news, we, <laughs> through a lot of prayer, yeah. we're you know, sensing that God's calling us to yeah. the UK. And I actually remember the day that I told um, my friend this, who was on our staff team, he, he was fully supportive immediately. He also said, well, now we need to pray if we're called to, to this. Yeah. Um, we need to pray if we're called sure. to reality light in, in this capacity. Yeah. And so it really began, you know, in one of my favorite verses in the book of Acts is, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I love that phrase. And that was very much the process of discerning my call. I knew this wasn't just about what God was calling me to do. I knew I cared deeply for my church in LA, deeply for the staff team. And I want to make sure that this is done healthy. And there's a lot of ways in which we've all seen transitions go very badly. So we were very committed to praying a lot. One by one told every leader from like the highest up part of the leadership team all the way down to um, just team members on different part of the staff team um, about what God was calling us to. And we pray together. And we did that for about six months before we ever announced it to the church. You hear quite a lot of stories, actually, of Brits going over to America and, um, you know, seeing some real, I hesitate to use the word, but success. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? You know, bigger, bigger numbers. And it's been argued that easier, really, to plant a church there than it is here. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think certainly people would also argue it can be very hard going the other way and you've gone the other way you've kind of you know in some people's view at least done the difficult path of going from america and certainly leaving behind a big structure a big church and and the sun yeah and the sun very important <laughs> just just want to well, what i was amazed about was you were telling me just a moment ago off air that um that when you came over it was just you it wasn't like you turned up with a huge team of 100 people I mean, I know people who have discussions, particularly about church planting in London, and they'll say, well, you need to start with 100 people to mm-hmm. really make an impact. That wasn't your story. So tell me about what happened when you came over. Yeah, I think, I know for my wife and I, we're very relational people. And I think one thing that I just shy away from, I don't, I don't know if this is, uh, I, I probably have some more philosophical beliefs about it, but personally, the idea of parachuting in and just kind of landing, like, you know, there's a ship coming and we're going to land and, you know, we have brought church to you. I, I just don't, mm-hmm. that approach doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I want to build relationships and out of that relational core, see what, see what God does. So that was, that was really our, our plan. Again, I'm, there's definitely other ways to do it that are fruitful and God blesses them. But for us, we just had to be faithful with how God's wired us and how he's called us. So this looked like just you and your family getting on a plane, coming over and starting to make friends. Yes, we thankfully over the years we definitely had some you know some some good friends personally. Um, one uh, vicar and his wife in particular, uh, their whole family. We'd been friends for years. Uh, man, they just they just loved us and received us immediately as family. I got to work with these this vicar for the first year of um, while we were living here in London on an evangelism project with his church, and it was amazing. We felt very welcome. But it was during that year that we took the time to um, just you know develop some relationships mm-hmm. some connections that we had and 
We started doing prayer meetings with those people. And then out of the prayer meetings, we started doing vision meetings to fill people in more. Here's what we believe. Here's what mm-hmm. our vision is. And then once we felt that those vision meetings were you know, going well and people were really kind of you know, together on that vision, that's when we began to prepare for a, our first Sunday. Did you encounter any kind of... Um almost like negative stereotypes from some Christians and feeling like, oh, you know, even just little things like your accent might put you at a slight disadvantage here of, of people having this opinion of, oh, who is this kind of mega church leader coming over here? Was was, was that a tension at any point? Yeah, there, there was a, a little bit of that. Um, I was actually surprised that there wasn't more, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think I was personally prepared for um, getting a lot of uh, church planning in general. I, I noticed it even in LA when somebody would come, didn't matter if you were coming from the UK or Ohio, um, when you just come into a city and you're the new person, doesn't matter what denomination you're from, there's this kind of insider outsider thing. Yeah. And having pastored in LA for 10 years and watching new church plants come in, yeah. it was something that I remember God doing in my own heart saying, mm-hmm. you know what? Don't have that attitude, mm-hmm. bless people, welcome them, Whatever you have to teach, teach, and whatever you, whatever you have to learn, learn. So for me, coming here, it was like with fear and trembling. Um, I did find myself having a few times, because if anybody knew about our former church, yeah. they would say, well, Tim, you know it's not like that here. You're not going to get thousands. I'm like, I know. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess I know. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I do need you to tell me. I don't know. I just We had pretty low, yeah. not low expectations. but um, You understood the cultural difference, perhaps, to yeah. a certain extent, having been here before, that it wasn't going to be the same church. or. Yep. We, we just basically all our ideas and visions, we wrote them out in pencil and gave them to God and God, whatever, whatever you want to do. We just want to be faithful. So tell me more about what that looks like. Uh, We've only been here for two years and almost three months. Oh, wow. And the church is a year and four months old. Wow. uh, If if we were to take the kind of first Sunday. So this is still really new. Very new. Very so new. what does it look like? And I'm expecting the answer is quite different to what you left behind in LA. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's different in all the, all the right ways. Yeah. Um, same values, I guess, same sort of vision, but outworked in a different way. Yeah. I think um, I definitely haven't changed, you know, my theology hasn't changed in the general vision of discipleship and evangelism and you know, just faithfulness to biblical preaching. None of that's changed. It's just, with totally different people mm-hmm. and seeing the ways in which their gifts and personalities, you know, really, um, you know, take the mission forward. I, that's what I really get excited about. And I think personally, I've been freed from trying to have this one idea of how that looks. Mm-hmm. I'm just thankful that people that we've gotten to know over the last, uh, you know, year and a half, two years since we've been here, I just feel so blessed and fortunate. Like these people are amazing. When my wife and I moved here, we think we know nobody and now my own children, my oldest of which is a teenager, and she sees these people who are now in our church, the church we didn't even know what it would look like. And now these men and women like love our children and love, you know, me, my wife and I. And that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like this is our family. This is our community. And along the way, we've been able to see new people come and people come to faith and see the church kind of take its form and shape because of that. So I, I have my kind of non-negotiables of, mm-hmm. you know, doctrine and preaching the gospel and all of this, but the flavor of it, you know, I'm happy for it to, you know, change over time as long as it's being changed by what's happening in the community. I love that. So how does it work practically? You're, you're meeting, hiring a building, how many services? Yep. We started uh, the first, let's see how many, it was probably nine months we started meeting in the after, Sunday afternoons um, in a community center. And the opportunity 
opened up for us to meet in the old theater of London School of Economics um, near Temple Station, which was amazing. And it was right about the time when, if I know for my wife and I having kids, the afternoon time slot can be pretty brutal. Uh, lots of other people love it, but it was just really hard for yeah. us. And I think we were at the size where the community center, we were just kind of at capacity and it was getting a little more difficult to make it happen. There. How many so, people were turning up at this point? Uh, there's probably about 120 people. Yeah, um, in the community center. Yeah. yeah. The theater at LSE uh, is just so great and they gave us storage there and it's just been an amazing partnership. So right. we've been there since uh, September and we moved to a, a morning slot and it's just been, oh, it's just been so great. So, I mean, slightly more philosophical question, but um, why church plant? Because there are those who would be very familiar and say, well, this is this is the way it's done. But actually, as a concept to start another church, there'll be those who argue, especially somewhere like London, that there are hundreds of church buildings. A number of them don't have many people in. You know, why don't we kind of go in and renew the building that's already there? Why start a whole new congregation? So what's the kind of yeah. philosophy of church planting? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um I think I'd probably answer that in a few ways. I think first I have a theological conviction about church planning. Um, my general, I guess you could call it a rule for life, is I don't want to be need-driven but call-driven. So I think at the end of the day, needs can make us aware of a call. But when I look at the life of Jesus, he's not just meeting every need. He's he's doing what the Father wants him to do. And I I think we take into consideration all the facts and all of that, absolutely. But ultimately— if I'm going to be faithful in something and if I'm going to stick to something when it's hard, I've got to know not just that mm. it's a need, but God is calling me to this. So that would be my theological conviction. But I suppose I do have a, a philosophical conviction, which and which is very important to me. I, I just think the more church plants, the better. I think, A, the statistics show us that there are so many people who have not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the amount is just staggering. And I just think church planning is one of the most effective forms of evangelism. So I would okay. I would love for there to just be thousands and thousands of churches. Mm. When you say it's an effective form of evangelism, are we saying, though, just putting on like another service in a new place under a new church plant, that in itself is evangelism? You know, do people still just sort of turn up to a, to a Sunday morning service if they're interested in Christianity? Great question. I, I think there, I think it's multifaceted. Yes, there's something about any gathering where a new person walks in. I just think there's, that's how a lot of people learn. There's mm. a lot of, uh, I love to go to uh, lectures that are put on in central London. That's just how I, I hear about new ideas instead of watching a Ted talk on YouTube. Like if there's an opportunity for me to go and to hear ideas presented, I love that. Mm. And a lot of people I meet do. Right. So in one sense, yeah. uh, I had a friend from a co-working space come, he's not a Christian and loved the idea. Like I'm going to come and he came and loved it. And he continues to come every so often because that's a way for him to engage with ideas. So there's definitely something to be said for that. So that is a, another evangelistic opportunity. But I also think that church plants, there's a high level of ownership that is required amongst all members that you cannot afford to just sit back. If you go to a more established church, mm. uh, I'm not saying this should happen, but some people walk in and they think, Oh, it's all up and running. I can just kind of receive. But there's something about a church plant that I've seen, even in the last year and a half, I've seen so many people grow precisely because they said, I'm going to help with this. And as a result of me having that high level of ownership, evangelism has been increased in my life because I'm in this, I'm aware, I'm inviting my friends, I'm talking about it in a way that I wouldn't have talked about it before. I also think that um, 
Tim Keller actually does talk about this a lot, that you can have two churches side by side who have uh, the same doctrine, but their particular ministry emphasis or focus, um, you know, could be very, very different. They have two different philosophies of ministry that could be reaching very different kinds of people. Um, and I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. I'm definitely not, I was not threatened by that in LA and I'm not threatened yeah. by it now. I, yeah, I just think it's amazing. <laughs> How many reality churches are there now? We, uh, so most of them are in California. The, the three wild cards are, um, us of course here in London. Yeah. Um, we have a church in Boston, Massachusetts and the we other also, coast of America. Yeah. So the other coast, which by the way, is actually equal flying time to go from LA to Boston as it is from London to Boston. Wow. So I'm suggesting to everyone we should meet in the middle, <laughs> although California weather is great. Um, and the third wild card is Honolulu, Hawaii. Wow. So you could not get more wow. opposite. Now, so, this might be yeah. unfair, but I have heard people joke about, oh, God, why did you not give me a call to Hawaii? <laughs> yes. In fact, the the family that we sent to go plant uh, in Honolulu, he knew that part of accepting this call was to put up with that yeah, joke. That oh, joke. you're suffering for yeah, Jesus in Hawaii. Suffering for Jesus. But it actually, believe it or not, it has a lot of challenges I can believe uh, that. Of its own. There is, I mean, I've already mentioned perhaps unfairly a couple of times the difference between America and, and the UK, but we should state as well, there's no such thing as an easy place to plant a church Yes, at the end of the day. Ministry is hard no matter what so yeah we have reality san francisco reality la ventura carpinteria santa barbara stockton boston Mm -hmm. so this is uh, a this is a church planting movement then yes Uh, movement always sounds so much bigger than it actually is like nine churches is that a movement um so we we actually prefer to call it a family um because it's part of what we're trying to Mm. promote um and usually I don't like slogans, but we our little slogan, if we have one, is we don't want to plant many churches, but healthy churches. And so we want to go slow and steady. We want a lot of prayer and investment from the whole church family. So whenever we plant a church, everyone's all in. All the churches donate. All the churches pray. All the churches support relationally. Mm-hmm. And that's just uh, worked for us really well. There's so many statistics coming out almost every week about Christianity in general in this country being in decline. Is that your experience of, of planning a church that actually is really, really tough and the culture and secularism is just growing all the time? I think there's different ways to answer that. I've, I've, I love to read all the, the latest articles, and it's interesting because you, get, you definitely get different perspectives. Uh, I think, was it the New York Times? I can't remember. There was one article I remember back in the States where it said, you know, Christianity is on the rise more than it's ever been. And then another article would come out and say, well, no, that was based on certain statistics. So... The only way I think I could really answer that is currently, I think definitely the trend, at least how people think is definitely, you know, has changed and mm-hmm. is continuing to change yeah. depending on how you define the term secular. Um, people really do think like that. E- even people in the church have tended, you know, to kind of take on a, a more secular way, at least of viewing the world, whether they realize it or not. We've been shaped by how we use our phone and how businesses run, how we view ourselves. And that tends to trump, you know, at times, sadly, even our own faith. So I definitely think whether you're talking about someone who's not a Christian at all and has no Christian background or to somebody who's been raised Christian, but really their formation has taken place in a more secular way. I think we're, the church is always, you know, fighting that trend as it were. And so in a sense, I think you almost have to preach the same message to both. You have to preach to the person who doesn't, you know, know that much about Christianity has a lot of questions. And in some ways I find myself, you're almost preaching that to even the person who perhaps grew up in a 
a Christian home, even, even my experience here. What's been the best day and the worst day of your ministry so far? Oh, and just life? Um, goodness. You know, I think I can definitely tell you um, my worst day, I think, was um, so the, the man who founded uh, the Reality Family of Churches happens to also be, other than my wife and close family members, probably the dearest man on planet earth to me. He's, he's my best friend. He's been so, um, you know, since we started our friendship way back when, and his daughter who was born on the same day around the same day as my oldest daughter, uh, she ended up getting cancer, this kind of mysterious Wilms tumor. And it was three brutal years. This was back when she was eight years old of just, you know, thousands of people were praying and, you know, the surgery would be done. The chemo would happen. It looked like it went away. It came back, looked like it went away. It's three years. And eventually she went to be with Jesus. And I believe she was about eight or nine at the, at the time. And the, the, I remember the, the weekend that it happened, mm. I was scheduled to preach at my church and my whole church knew of it. it was such a public way yeah. to, you know, when someone in that position suffers, yeah. everybody knows about it. And he was my best friend. It, yeah. it wasn't like, here's an announcement about this church leader and let's pray for them. I wept every single service. Um, and I, I, but I also didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to make it about me and my mm. own processing of it, but I also couldn't apologize or pretend that I wasn't absolutely heartbroken. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that was definitely, I think the toughest day that, that I've ever had, you know, get up there, preach the word to our church, but mourn and weep and yeah. And just, you know, a child going through that. It's just horrible. Mm. Um, it's just absolutely horrible. Um, best day. That is such a hard one to choose. I, I suppose I have to, um, I think, you know, in the States, because of the way that the school break happens during Easter, um, you don't get as much time off. And so Easter Sunday in, in many ways is almost like a carol service. Um, at least my experience here in London, it's kind of Mm. the big opportunity. Everyone's there around, they're not away on holiday. And so it's the, it's an easy ask, invite somebody to church. And we had the opportunity to rent out these big theaters in LA and just make a huge deal out of Easter and we would do baptisms uh, right there on the spot. It's a great and, day to do it, isn't it? Oh, Easter Sunday, just baptism. amazing baptisms. And yeah, there was one we we got to do um, at this one theater on Sunset Boulevard. We actually did the baptisms on Sunset Boulevard. It was like amazing. Wow. You know, people were driving by, and <laughs> you know, the marquee said "Jesus loves L.A." at the Hollywood <laughs> Palladium. It was amazing. But my favorite moment was we did one of those services, and uh, my oldest daughter got baptized, and uh, it was just a beautiful. Yeah, just thinking we're like this church that has no clue what we're actually doing, <laughs> but Jesus is being preached, lives are being changed, and my own daughter is getting baptized. You know, that's definitely uh that was a huge highlight. Watching all these people come to Christ and seeing her make that public profession was amazing. So how would you describe your calling? I would describe my calling. That's a really good question. Um how would I describe my calling? I would say going back to that that moment I described in the uh, reading the Martin Lloyd-Jones book, I very much would describe my, my calling from that point to this day as, as something that compels me, meaning that it wasn't like a great idea mm-hmm. I had one day, though we may have those. It wasn't something that was formed through just a slow kind of reasonable process of like, oh, you know, I can kind of teach a little bit oh, I can lead a little bit over here. Maybe I should be a pastor. I think some people discern their call that way. 
Um, absolutely. But for me, it was from that moment, I, I just felt compelled. Like I just, I must do this, this settled conviction. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said to his, his students back in the day, um, rule number one, settle your convictions. And I just, uh, that was settled for me. Like I've got to preach. And so therefore I need to learn. I need to grow. I need to do this. I need to be faithful in season, out of season. So I, I would describe my, my calling as something that um, compels me, but I think also I would describe it as, I mean, ministry is, as anyone's going to tell you, it's got the high highs and the low lows, you know, there's the heartbreaking stuff of watching marriages fall apart and, you know, people just go through all kinds of suffering and, mm. you know, people fall away from the faith. I mean, as you know, that stuff is, is heart wrenching, but at the same time you get to see people, you know, saved radically. You get to see marriages healed. You get to see friendships formed. You get to see people view their jobs in different ways. And, um, so I'd say it's both this like, you know, kind of heavy and light burden. You know, I I definitely feel the weight of ministry on a daily basis. So there's definitely a heaviness there. I know that when I get up to preach, I don't, I'm not at Liberty just to like do some cool thing or just say whatever I want. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm a messenger and I've, I, I, what's on the agenda is what's in the Bible. It's not my own thing. So I, I feel that very heavily, but it's also amazing. I think I remember reading John Stott's biography and he said, whenever I get up to, to preach, you know, I, I have a twinkle in my eye because I, I get to preach the word of God. And I read that and I think, man, it is amazing. Like this yeah. is, this is so incredible what we get to do. Um, so yeah, it's, it's compelling. It's heavy and it's joyful somehow some way all at the same time well tim it's been an absolute pleasure thanks so much for coming on the show thank you for having me sam you're listening to premier christian radio that was my interview with the pastor of reality church london tim chaddock i do hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to hear more interviews with leading christians then you can visit our website premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile This show is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. It's Premier Christianity. And if you would like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can visit our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type your details in and we will send you a free copy of the latest issue of the magazine. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today on the show. But if you want to hear more interviews with leading Christians, you can now access this show as a podcast. Just go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile and you will be able to access past shows on your mobile phone. Just get the podcast, click subscribe and you'll be away. Well, coming up next here on Premier Christian Radio is Premier Playback. <laughs> 